Have you been stressed, anxious, or worried? Have you felt pangs of loneliness in recent times? Are you longing for greater connection with others in the world around you? In a phrase, are you looking for happiness? You are not alone. Millions of others are seeking this feeling of spiritual, mental, and physical wellness too. This podcast explores the underlying causes of unhappiness and shares with us the secrets of rewriting the frequent thoughts and redirecting the common behaviors that keep us in that state. Join forensic psychologist and best-selling author Dr. Nihal and her guests as they dive deep in the realm of psychological wellness and explore ways of finding happiness on demand. I'd like to introduce you, my listeners, to this wonderful person who has decided to spend some time with us today, Dr. Jeffrey Zeig. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Zeig to let you know that he's a, a distinguished member of the American Psychological Association. He's a fellow of the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. He's also featured in Wikipedia. Did you know that? And he's a gifted orator. He's a prolific writer. His works have been translated into over 14 languages, and he conducts training workshops with people like myself, <laughs> i.e. psychotherapists and people in the helping field, in over 40 countries. He's a speaker at the Mayo Clinic. He's the architect of the evolution of psychotherapy conferences. He organizes brief therapy con- conferences, couples therapy conferences, and he's spending some time with us. Isn't that amazing? Dr. Zeig, welcome. May I call you Jeff? Sure. And uh, one of my other credentials is being a friend. Yes. Well, I I think you're an amazing friend. Jeff and I know each other for over three decades. It's been a while, huh? And I see you yeah. have changed one little bit. I think we should tell our audience or extend wedding congratulations to Jeffrey as well. He's got married recently, and I've had the honor of meeting his wife, another psychotherapist who is brilliant. Did you know, Jeff, that psychotherapy today, this little, these guys here, I don't know if you had the chance to read it, but no, in, not, yet. not yet. Well, anyway, I happened to stumble on it and I noticed that they did a feature article on Ericksonian hypnosis. And I know you've spent your entire life promoting the nuggets that this living legend left behind. Can you share some of it with us? Well, I met Eric's in 1973. I had uh, completed my master's degree. It was before I earned my PhD. And this was uh, an amazing moment. Uh, It would be an aspiring student getting an opportunity to study with Freud or um, uh, an aspiring uh, um, person who uh, was studying the internet uh, to get to uh, study with one of the internet gurus. So I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. And Erickson accepted me as a student, and then I traveled frequently to learn from him. Erickson was a conceptual communicator. He wasn't someone who taught techniques or theories, or, or he elicited concepts. And that was something that was really unusual to me, because in order to get my degrees, I had to memorize theories, research, and facts. And Erickson was not about that. He was about people developing business. How could I be a better Jeff Zeid? And uh, I couldn't really grasp that because it was so out of the ordinary for what I had encountered as a uh, student of psychotherapy. But gradually, I, uh, I began to 
understand that there's sometimes that you want to use linear communication. If you're sending a rocket ship to the moon, you need to know calculus and you need to be able to compute escape velocity. But if you want to be happy about sending a rocket ship to the moon, it's a different form of communicating. It's a form of communicating that exists more in literature and certainly exists in the world of hypnosis. So I've been spending my latter part of my career trying to help people to understand the difference between evocative communication, which is needed for changing states, and informative communication, which is needed for helping people to learn facts. Tell us a little bit more about that. Let's say that you want your child to be motivated or you want your child to be responsible. Now, if you explain what responsibility means, it's probably not going to affect the person to be able to realize how to be responsible. If you explain the reasons why motivation is useful, it's probably not going to reach a, a, a young adult or a child. But if a child is engaged in something like uh, being a member of a sports team or, or uh, 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 siring and helping to bring a pet in, uh, into, into the world, then uh, that then responsibility, motivation could be a byproduct. So in some things, like if you want somebody to laugh, you can't just instruct them why laughing is something that's good for them and something that's helpful and will cause all kinds of neurological changes in their brain. You need to tell them a joke. There needs to be an induction, and that induction has the capacity to stimulate humor. And uh, so it's the same when we're thinking about motivation, responsibility, connection, <clears throat> focus, orientation. There's some things that require us to use more evocative forms of communication. So what I've been doing is taking things from hypnotic practice and bringing them into the world of psychotherapy. And arguably that makes people happier. Does it make people happy? Yes. Yeah, your your area of inquiry is happiness. And yes. you can't just say to somebody, you should be happy, and you'll be happy if you have money, and you'll be happy if you have friends, and you'll be happy if you have a partner. Um, the, uh, happiness is more of a byproduct that happens by engaging in things that have the capacity to stimulate happiness. Yes, I like what you just said, because what you're telling our listeners as well is you're underscoring the importance of experiential learning. Right. Yeah. Right. When we're learning how to uh, speak, when I'm learning how to speak a foreign language, I have to learn the rules of grammar, and that's really painful. But if you're a child and you're learning a language, you're learning intuitively and you're putting the pieces of that language together without having to and bypassing conscious intent. And so there's some things that are learned better by virtue of experiencing them and other things that you need to learn by virtue of conscious intent. You remember when you wrote that book with me, Habits of a Happy Life? And yep. Can you... Tell our audience something about how to do this, because I think it would be brilliant. It would be so helpful. How to be happy? How to develop a habit. Remember we talked about yes. happy habits. I call them yes. habits. But you were brilliant in terms of how to get people to do it, because it's, you know, it's like you and I know that exercise is good, but, you know, how many of us are going to do it? Like you and I know that communication is important and yet i'm sure you hear of people saying well i don't feel listened 
too. So I'm wondering, do you remember in that book you talked about habits and we both cultivated a series of habits that people could use and be happier and how to do it, the how yeah. to do it that you developed? I thought it was brilliant. Habits are a part of our human nature. Yes. And how we put on our shoes becomes a habit. At first, we had to learn how to make bunny ears and tie shoes and to do that very awkwardly and intentionally. And then we just relegate that to our automatic functioning. So it just happens. And happiness is not a destination. It's a way of traveling. I, I'm sure that uh, I am stealing that quote from someone. Maybe Eleanor Roosevelt was the one who said that. And um, so um, it's, it's an attitude that you bring to a situation. It's an attitude that I bring to the situation now. It's an attitude that you bring to the situation. And we want to infuse a backdrop of happiness into, into our uh, communicative world right now. So um, is, if it's, is it something that you can do? One, two, three, four, five. Uh, you probably can to some extent make it into a, a, an equation, do one, do two, do three, do four, do five, and step six, you'll be happy. But really, it doesn't work that way. Happiness is something that um, you infuse into the situation just because uh, it it matters. And uh, But happiness needs to be a byproduct of doing things that are meaningful. It's meaningful for you and I to have this conversation. Happiness will be a byproduct of it. If it's meaningful to uh, cook a meal, happiness will be a byproduct of cooking a meal. You can't just program yourself unless you happen to be a trained actor and say, okay, now one, two, three, I'm going to be happy. There has to be something that evocatively induces a realization so that happiness becomes a byproduct of the inductive process. <laughs> And you uh, motivate people, and you have a very good way of motivating people to implement some of these choices. Well, motivation is a step in strategic development. And uh, so it's the end point of, of, a, of strategic development. We think about how we enter, how we offer, and how we exit in yes. any given situation. And when we think in terms of that three-step process, a little bit like tennis racket, how you set up the stroke, how you connect, and how you follow through determines the efficacy of the tennis stroke. Now, we don't normally think about that in terms of um, uh, our communication, but uh, some people do, and Milton Erickson was one of those people who did. And uh, I never learned about strategic development when I was in graduate school, but every playwright, every novelist, every movie maker, every choreographer understands of something about strategic development. And strategic development can be something that is evocative in eliciting happiness. You're here, you're listening, you're understanding, you know what it is that you want to feel, and you can feel because then you spread it to your children, to your family, to your friends and others, and it makes you feel better about who you are. You know, that was using strategic development, talking in, in three strategic steps. Correct, yeah. And I guess if people did that more often, they would feel more fulfilled. They'd become a better version of themselves, wouldn't they? That's a bit better way of communicating, enter, offer, exit. 
is a better way of communicating when you want somebody to realize something. But, um, you know, doing things that are evocative, like being evocative is using a gesture as a representation of the state that you want somebody to realize. And using a metaphor could be a representation of, uh, of something using an analogy. You can be as happy as a lark in a, in a nest. And, um, so we want to be able to embellish the concepts that we want somebody to realize. And this is the same thing that happens in music where you have a musical theme, like from Beethoven's fifth or yes. from Ravel's Bolero. And then you elaborate on that theme and make the theme come alive. So there are things that are done evocatively in the field of art that haven't made their way into normal everyday communication. They certainly haven't made their way into psychotherapy. So that's one of the areas that I pursue. How can we help people to enliven their communication, make it more meaningful, hence make it more effective? Hmm. I think that's very important today, especially if you look at the fact that we are dealing with uncertainty and uncertainty brings dis-ease for a lot of people. Well, there's a, a lot of negative inductions and that happen in, just in the news and newspaper and news on television and radio and we're subject to that uh, induction because bad news uh, sells more advertising products than good news. So um, the human brain is a mismatch detector and designed to notice what is wrong in any given situation. This, this is our genetic design. We're not so designed to notice what's right in a given situation as we are to notice what's wrong. So the news uh, plays to that facet of uh, human evolution, how far we've come in terms of our own ability to mature and develop. Yes. I mean, I was thinking right now, as you spoke about Maui and what happened there recently, and the natural disaster. Yeah, natural disaster right across the world, because we've been a little bit like ostriches refusing to look at reality, namely our carbon footprint. Yes. I mean, Dan Siegel talks about that as well, as I'm sure you're aware. Yep. Yeah. So in the middle of all of that, I think what you're saying is so very important for us to look at the situation different, differently, that we don't have to have a negativity bias at all times, but we can look at things and look at it, if possible, with a positivity bias. Yes, and not, not so easy, but something that is beneficial um, to learn how to look at the flowers in the garden rather than the weeds in the garden and uh, uh, how to promote um, the, uh, the changes in perspective, changes in behavior, changes in relationship that support a upward spiral rather than a downward spiral. What was that story years ago? I think you told me that story about there are no weeds in my garden, just flowers. Yes, um, that's just a metaphor, a convenient metaphor for saying to people that they can orient to something positive, and uh, in any given situation, there's something to extol, something to value, something to build on, and uh, rather than something to be dismissive of, something to ignore, and something to criticize. It's a little bit easier for us to be a mismatch detector because it had evolutionary advantage. 
Right. You might not have to remember if you ate one good fruit, but you'd certainly have to remember if you ate one bad fruit, if you were prehistoric uh, human uh, humanoid. So, uh, I guess you'd stay prehistoric at that point. <laughs> you'd be dead, right? Yes. Yeah, but I, I think I think what you you're sharing with the listeners and with me as well that, that's an important nugget is that we need to look at things metaphorically, experientially, not just focus on the negatives, but look at the whole situation and find the flowers amid the weeds. And then you realize there are no weeds, actually. But it's difficult for a lot of people. It's very difficult for a lot of people. But um, if you really want to uh, engage in session of psychotherapy with a professional, just magnify the negative and uh, don't uh, amplify the positive. If you want to avoid paying hundreds of dollars to be in psychotherapy office, then magnify the positive and uh, minimize the negative. It's a very simple formula and very uh, fun fundamental formula about how to uh, enjoy happiness in the world. Whatever's going on, there's got to be something that can be extolled in the situation, even in the most bleakest of circumstances. Well, I think as you're talking to me right now, I, I can't help but remember Viktor Frankl and tragic optimism. Yes. Yeah, I was very lucky to spend time with Viktor Frankl and his night when he was in his 90s, and uh, he was a, a living example of um, bringing meaning to life. I remember I visited him in the Allgemeines Krankenhaus, and he had a coronary event, and he was in the hospital. And uh, I was a friend of the family, so I got to visit him. And I brought my sponsor, my workshop sponsor, I was in Vienna teaching. And Charlotta, my workshop sponsor, had met Victor Frankl before. He was weak. But uh, as soon as we entered the room, he pulled himself off of his bed and kissed Charlotta's hand. And you knew that this was a matter of being meaningful and that whatever... <clears throat> situation befell him, his first instinct was to create meaning. And this was an instinct that he developed in the concentration camp. They could take away every dignity that uh, he could uh, have achieved as a professor of neurology and psychiatry. And uh, yet they couldn't take away his will to create meaning. And I don't know that that was curative and helping him get out of the concentration camp, but that was certainly formative in developing his philosophy, which he expressed very clearly in a classic book, Man's Search for Meaning, that sold millions of copies. And it's uh, about how we can face adversity and, and make uh, good things happen out of adversity. So. And if he could do that, who are we to say we can't find meaning as well? Yes. And uh, uh, the human brain, the human heart are meaning-making organs. So we, we uh, have the natural propensity to make something meaningful. And uh, if we can focus on that, um, how uh, that is uh, a tool that makes resilience more uh, easy to uh, exercise in any given situation. But if those people who want to pursue this, it's easy to find a book by, by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. 
Uh, I pro- I've read it more than once, so I uh, um, have found great inspiration in that. And uh, it was uh, a exposition of you can't be happy in a concentration camp. Uh, I don't know how anybody would be able to deny reality that much, but you could still do things that were meaningful and uh, um, that in itself would be the induction that from which happiness uh, could arise. I think what you're saying as well that resonates with me is the notion of hope. Yes. Hope is a, a, a function that we can all exercise in even the direst of circumstances. We can still hope for a salutary outcome, and uh, sometimes we can uh, even make it happen by virtue of hope. And finding the meaning that gives yes. hope. That, yes. That's so very important, I think. Are there other points that you would like to share with our listeners? Well, um, it is uh, really study art and understand that art is communication and art is not a linear form of communication. Um, There are things that can be described in art in linear terms. If you want to know that war is horrible, you could write an encyclopedia about all of the tragedies that have been that have befallen human beings by virtue of all of the wars that have, uh, have happened. But if you take one look at Picasso's 1937, I think, painting Kernica, you immediately have the realization about how horrible war is. So do you want to inform, do you want to realize what uh, tools of communication do you use when we, when you want somebody to understand something? What tools do you use when you want somebody to realize something? And because of studying hypnosis for 50 years, which I've been, which I've done, then that teaches me something about uh, uh, the forms of evocative communication that are necessary to help people to realize um, different states flexibility, more capacity to be able to be adaptive and to deal with some of the difficult circumstances that befall all of us. We're not immune. We can't uh, escape from difficult circumstances, but a lot is about attitude and how we can modify our attitude to accordingly to be able to add richness to any given situation rather than to just complain endlessly about the difficulties that we suffer. Yeah, it's called kvetching, right? Called what? Kvetching. It's a term that a a friend of mine gave me recently, K-V-E-T-C-H. Kvetching. It's very therapeutic, I heard, and I like doing it. (laughs) Uh Tell people about (laughs) kvetching. Yeah. She she and I have a good old time doing it. I mean it's very therapeutic when you could just and and you know what? Life's a bitch. And it's all good. Okay. I leave feeling really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's part of my heritage and certainly uh I grew up in that um atmosphere, but it doesn't it's not the kind of thing that I carry forward into my life. 
I do. <laughs> it's very therapeutic. I go, nye, nye, nye. and this happened and that happened. And I, you know what? I feel good now. I've dumped all my crap on you and I'm okay now. You know, it's like I've been a washer. As someone said to me recently, I just felt, I feel like I've been dumped on. I said, okay, use it for fertilizer. What's the problem? It's very therapeutic. You know, you do that. Mm-hmm. Great, great metaphor. You're a good minch, as she said to me. You're a good one. You should tell them what that term means, too. And that's what I was told recently. That's what I am, a good minch. And I said, okay, whatever. Uh-huh. Which part of me looks Jewish? Anyway, the, the, the point is, I think, <laughs> humor is really good, too, to help us just to be able to laugh at ourselves and laugh at others. So, you know, I, I think back, you know, my granny grew up in, the you know, World War II. So life was terrible then. So What? She she did well. We all yeah. we all have what you talk about, Jeff. That spirit of resilience, our capacity to transform ugly into something that's beautiful. And you talk about art. I agree with you. I mean, I can be transported into a different realm when I listen to a good symphony. You know, yeah. and the tears come. And I don't know where they're coming from, but I'm feeling it. And I guess that's the thing that you're you're saying to us today. We got to feel. Put away this part of our head, the prefrontal cortex, and just feel. Yeah, rather than evaluate. Well, Stand, our, feel, experience, realize. Yeah. So so tell me something. How do you get people to have a positivity bias? And that's going to be your new bestseller, positivity bias. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it uh, is certainly available to everyone. And uh, it's not an easy thing to do because the default state is to um, look at the problems rather than the uh, opportunities. So, um, and it's, uh, there has to be a moment of got it. Like uh, that moment of got it could be as simple as uh, watching children at the playground and seeing how they approach a game with joy. It could be, uh, you know, noticing uh, uh, some very, a simple uh, event in life, like a child enjoying an ice cream cone, and suddenly, you know, I can do this. I can uh, expand my possibilities rather than contract them into into critique. You know, we are designed to uh, have both capacities to either um, amplify the positive and in some alchemical way or to, to harp on the negative and it's uh, more uh, common for people to be complaining about the problems in life than it is to uh, be extolling the potentials that life brings to us. Well, Whatever we do, problems are going to find us. We can't avoid that. But uh, everything is a matter of attitude and how you can reshape your attitude. If, uh, you know, there's a pile of shit, there's got to be a pony under there somewhere and find the the, uh, possibilities rather than the the, uh, problems. If, If you want to be a patient in psychotherapy, just amplify the negative. And if you want to uh, be someone who extols joy and uh, lives joy, just amplify the positive. Now, as simple as that message is to say, it's not so easy to do because we all have uh, backaches and headaches and uh, social uh, misfortunes and economic misfortunes, and they happen to all of us. But 
um, it's uh, an amazing gift to just be alive and to uh, be able to do the miraculous thing of uh, having breakfast cereal and turning that into conversation and love and motivation and creativity. And if we can focus on the um, the uh, gifts that are available to us, then we uh, stop uh, harping on the limitations and because no matter what we do, the limitations will find us. You know, it's uh, it's important what you're saying. I find it very useful because it resonates with my philosophy on life. I mean, the Dalai Lama explained it very nicely when he said, want what you have, not need what you want. Yes. And I think, Jeff, what you're saying is so important for our listeners, and also for me, I take it to heart. Namely, you're not talking about toxic positivity or having that grin on your face and saying life is beautiful. You're saying life sucks at times, but pick it up as an opportunity for a change. Take it up as a challenge. Yes. Right? Isn't that yeah. what you Well, that's what you do. That's what I do. And that's what we try to perfuse the uh, population with uh, is an understanding that you have choice. And the, the choice is you can look at the garden and see the flowers or you can complain about the weeds. And I think the word choice is so important today when we look at natural disasters or things that the news will highlight or things outside of our control. We still have choice in terms of how we choose to react to those situations, what we choose to do. I mean, Oprah Winfrey yesterday was out at Costco buying sheets for people in the shelter. Uh -huh. I thought that was pretty neat for, I, I mean, you know, part of me, maybe it's negativity bias. I thought that's good. That's good PR for Oprah. But also very, very important that she was humble enough to say, I'm going to go and do this thing, you know, for people. I thought I, that really resonated well. Yeah. We all have a, a capacity for being altruistic and uh, um, we all uh, can reach out and help people that are uh, in need. So that's, is another way of creating meaning. We create meaning by doing good deeds. We create meaning by love, by loving, and we create meaning by uh, suffering some difficult fate and uh, finding a way of transcending the difficulties of our situation and making joy come alive. Jeff, I want to thank you on behalf of our listeners for a fantastic time together. The, the conversation was brilliant. And as usual, thank you. Oh, my pleasure and good luck with your project and your happiness project is really important. And I hope that uh, people tune themselves into the things that you're saying. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Thank you for joining this discussion on happiness. We hope this helps to inspire you to lead a more joyful life. To dive deeper into the subject of happiness, be sure to check out Dr. Nihal's book, Happy is the New Healthy available as an ebook or hardcover. For additional resources, visit our website at drneehall.com. Until next time, stay happy.